Welcome to Untangle, the podcast from Five Star App Meditation Studio. I'm Patricia Karpus, co-founder of Meditation Studio and your host on Untangle, along with my co-host, Ariel Garten, one of the founders of brain-sensing headband, Muse. Join us each week as we introduce you to authors, experts, and thought leaders who share their stories on how meditation, mindfulness, and brain-focused practices have the power to change our lives. Whether you're just learning to meditate or want to deepen your practice, Meditation Studio with hundreds of guided meditations and Muse, which gives you real-time feedback on your mind during meditation, and Muse 2, which also tracks your breath, your heart, and your body, are tools you'll definitely want to have in your back pocket. Now, here's this week's episode with Ariel. Hello and welcome to another wonderful episode of Untangle. Today, my guest is Dr. Manpreet Singh. She's the Associate Professor of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences at Stanford, and she directs the Pediatric Mood Disorders Program. She's here to teach us about resilience and to help us understand at any age, whether we're youths moving into a time when we could be vulnerable for a psychiatric disease or we're adults trying to live the best life we can, how at any age we can use different practices to enhance and enable our resilience. She'll also teach us some of the new theories behind what resilience might look like in the brain and how neuroscience might direct us to new ideas and opportunities in this space. Was that accurate? Perfect. Great. Welcome, Manpreet. Thank you. Glad to be here. Wonderful to have you. And I have to start off by asking about your beautiful name, Manpreet. What does that mean? Well, it comes from the origins of uh, Gurmukhi, which is a a North Indian um, religious uh, scriptural language um, that uh, breaks down to man and preet. Man means mind and preet means love. So the essential (laughs) meaning of this name is um, really love of your essential self. Um, It's a name that was given to me by my parents as a gift to remind me to journey in life, uh, self-realizing and continuing to um, work and travel through life, um, reminding myself of my essential self, but also loving my essential self. Um, So though it's not something that's a fixed trait, um, self-realization requires continual self-evaluation and improvement. It's certainly an inspiration to me, uh, and I'm grateful for that gift from my parents. I just have to ask, how did the awareness of your name evolve? Because when you're little, you know, being named Mm -hmm. Mind Love means one thing, and then as you grow into a teenager and into an adult, obviously doing such deep work in this space, it takes on a whole new context. It really does. And I think that's the beauty and potential of language where you can interpret it uh, throughout your life um, in the context of your experiences. So my parents um, taught me uh, the language uh, of Gurmukhi, uh, the Sikh scriptural language, early in life so that I could have the tools to be able to Um, understand its literal meaning and then be able to apply it to my daily life. So I use it as a way 
to continue to not just understand the literal language, but it's a very um, poetic language and meant to be inspirational. Over time, you begin to appreciate its deeper value. For sure, I would say that my name has uh, evolved in terms of meaning for me throughout my life, because it, that was just the introduction to a much, much larger engagement with the philosophical principles that underlie mind love. Well, it sounds like your parents really set you up for success and resilience. And I know your early experience in your family really taught you a very immediate experience of resilience with your sister. Can you tell us yeah. about that a little bit? I sure can. Um, my sister was born in 1980, around the same time, uh, actually several months after my family immigrated uh, to North America, first to Canada, and then we moved later on to uh, to the U.S. Uh, from India. And uh, I was three at the time, and my sister was born um, in early 80s in Canada. The resources were very limited in terms of um, care for kids that might have special needs. And my sister was born with Down syndrome. And at the time, uh, the doctor's um, prognosis for my sister wasn't very positive. Uh, it suggested that my sister might not live very long and that uh, because she had some complicated heart conditions, she would die fairly soon after birth. Uh, she mm -hmm. waited three years to receive um, an important surgical intervention to try to repair um, a, a heart defect that is commonly associated with Down syndrome. And by that time, her lungs had become so weak that she wouldn't survive that surgery if, um, if it was uh, prolonged. So they did part of the procedure. They uh, did a, a procedure that um, was important for life-saving um, pr procedure uh, to keep her at least alive and her lungs functioning. But the hole that she had in her heart um, remained open and unrepaired. Mm -hmm. And that wasn't a particularly um, uh, uncommon thing for kids with Down syndrome in that uh, early stage of uh, exploration of this uh, problem um, in science and in medicine, uh, though uh, I think the bigger challenge for my family was to manage the rather bleak uh, prognosis that was presented to us. And it wasn't just once, it was several times through her early life when we heard with pretty regular frequency that my sister was going to die. And oh um, that was that was hard. That you were was, like five. Uh, I was four, five, six, and I would continue to hear that um, be prepared. And and my parents weren't very doom and gloom. They would sort of absorb this information and take it into context. Um, they had, um, I think, a strong belief system um, of a higher power um, that was probably in play for from their perspective, and um, and that that helped them cope. But what was curious to me was the prognosis uh, just was so consistent. Um, and though I know the the practitioners and the specialists were doing what they needed to do to ensure that um, um, we had some understanding of uh, her condition and its trajectory, uh, there was still a hint of unknown. And um, that hint of an unknown is what became my passion. <laughs> because uh, as I grew up, I became very enamored with the idea that what we don't know um, should be a source of hope and inspiration for us, um, not 
not a source of uh, discomfort or uh, anxiety. Um, and so when I grew up, I became a doctor and I vowed that I would work with kids like her uh, who struggled with issues that medicine didn't know much about and that I would work to engage with both um, uh, advancing knowledge um, so that we can go into uncharted territory in science, but also be in the business of conveying hope to families um, who are struggling with chronic illness. I became the hope doctor very quickly after I uh, explained this um, inspiration uh, from early childhood. And that seems apropos um, because of the work that I do in um, children suffering from depression, which is fundamentally a disorder of despair and hopelessness. Even in that context, I feel that there is hope, even in hopelessness. My desire to engage with this career in such a way was entirely inspired by my parents and my family's process, uh, both of grieving that my my sister might have many, many challenges ahead, um, but also recognizing the potential innate capacity for her to be resilient. Um, in fact, she is 39 this year and um, thriving. Um, she beat all the odds. Um, she's not even oxygen dependent for her failing heart or um, needing medications chronically, except for mild uh, associated conditions related to uh, Down syndrome, but lives a very functional, rich life and has inspired my family to imagine that even when you don't do much um, and have a hope and um, continue to engage with a subspecialist to make sure that um, that the medical needs are are met, um, there are there's always room for hope. Oh my God, your sister survived, is thirty nine and thriving, and doesn't even need medication for her heart or her lungs. That's right. Right. So we didn't expect this. And when I was 20 and in my 20s and um, training in medicine, it was the first time in my life when I had heard a cardiologist say to me that my sister might actually be alive to see my children, which was unfathomable <laughs> to <cry>. me. <laughs> it was unfathomable to me. It's really, it was really touching and um you know, pun intended, heartwarming, <laughs> um, because this is a child who grew up with cards stacked against her, and uh, she she beat it, she beat them all, and um, and it's it's what I see time and time again in many many individuals around the world who are struggling and still find a way to engage with hope. So that led you to study resilience. It certainly inspired my path towards this. So when I've previously seen you talk about your work, you've talked about 10 different tools that people can use for resilience, which we're going to dive into today. Can you give us just a little overview of what some of those tools are, and then later we can dive into the details on them? So I think that the building on the science of resilience is an intriguing solution to a number of breakthroughs that we need to make in order to translate medicine to meet clinical unmet needs of all sorts of patients from all walks of life. We need better tools to help us detect disease conditions early on, biomarkers, if you will. We need preemptive interventions for people who are at risk or in pre-symptomatic stages of illnesses. And we need better treatments for people living with 
uh, serious chronic conditions like depression that not only predict outcomes, but can track them over time so that we know not only what um, is uh, tracking towards um, more vulnerability, but also what's tracking towards success and adaptation. So we generally define resilience as a complex and dynamic process. It's you know, broadly defined as the ability to adapt successfully to adversity, stressful life events, significant threat, or trauma. And it tends to be on a continuum because it can be cultivated and with tremendous potential for change across the lifespan. One of the key uh, factors that my sister's physicians uh, relayed to my family um, in my 20s when I finally heard that she she might live to be, uh, uh, you know, um, an aunt, an aunt, uh, exactly, was that that it was our family's own resilience that contributed to my sister's survival, that one of the reasons she was alive today was because of the love that my family conveyed to um, to her and the the not giving up the the the, the belief that she would do just fine and um, and that she had her own intrinsic capacities for adaptation and so this became of great interest to me and um, and I studied and researched wherever I could what are the biological uh, aspects of adaptation? What are the uh, biological aspects of resilience? If it's a dynamic process, have we been able to study it over time? What do we understand to be um, not just important for the basis of resilience in humans, but is there something in nature more broadly that can help us understand this? And I came across work done um, by uh, scientists at Mount Sinai. Dr. Eric Nessler, just in September, published with his team in Nature Neuroscience a very interesting study in animals where he used a gene co-expression analysis of RNA sequencing data from the brains of mice. And what he did with these mice is they exposed these mice to a social defeat uh, uh, experiment um, that is a social stress paradigm uh, to identify a gene network that potentially is unique to resilience. And what the team discovered is that there's this zinc finger-like protein, ZFP189, and it encodes for a previously unstudied zinc finger protein, and it apparently is the highest-ranked key driver gene in the network. Overexpression of ZFP189 in the region of the brain that regulates so many cognitive functions and emotion, the prefrontal cortex, when overexpression of this gene in prefrontal cortical neurons um, is, is observed in these animals, it preferentially activates the network in the brain that promotes behavioral resilience. Whoa. Okay, so hold on. So just backing up for the layman. So there is yep. a gene, ZFP, that when it's overexpressed, i.e. you're going to get a lot of the protein that it creates. When you see a lot of that protein in the prefrontal cortex, you're going to see an increase in resilience in the animal. In the animal when exposed to social defeat stress. That's right. And what was 
curious to me was um, a couple of things. The fact that this was previously unstudied (laughs) reinforced to me that we have some work to do and um, we really don't know a lot about what's adaptive. And can we learn more about um, what's adaptive in, um, in our efforts to develop better treatments for people who are more vulnerable. Just to dig in, do we, do we know what it is that causes increased expression of this gene? What their finding suggests is that when you overexpress this gene um, and, and, and the protein for this particular protein, the in, in, in a very selective region of the brain that's really important for regulation, you could begin to see evidence of behavioral resilience to social defeat stress. The second thing that was super interesting to me was that when we are oriented around understanding resilience, we seem to be very focused on social interactions. And this becomes important when we talk about the other work that folks at Mount Sinai are doing that talk about the 10 steps towards resilience, because one of those steps relates to prosociality, the importance of engaging in social interactions. And the fact that Dr. Nessler and his team used this, used a social paradigm to understand resilience speaks to me um, the importance, again, of what what my, my sister's physicians told me about why my sister is alive today. It's the family love, mind love, family love, <laughs> social love, that in fact is, has been critical to my sister's survival. And it's the social interactions that we have day to day that may be a very important clue to promoting resilience, not just in individuals, but in families, in societies, in communities in, around the world. And if we can engage with that broader vision of supporting behavioral resilience through reinforcement of social interactions that are positive, then perhaps we might help our more vulnerable folks be more resilient, even in the face of significant life-threatening stress. When we're able to provide a better social environment, whether it's for a stranger or a loved one, we have the potential of encouraging their resilience. And it sounds like these mechanisms of resilience, like when we talk about what is it that is actually happening in the mind or body when you improve resilience, is this... uh, epigenetic? Is it that some increase in some factor then turns on a gene, which then increases protein, which then, you know, shifts your body in one way or the other? That's exactly what we need to study (laughs) and uh, more and understand. So those pathways, uh, the way that you delineated that very nicely, um, also calls out the important work that many scientists are doing in epigenetics that Uh, have now demonstrated very clearly the environmental impact of uh, stress and the potential to actually um, induce brain plasticity towards adaptation rather than stress by creating a more nurturing environment. So growing up in, not just growing up in an environment that's nurturing and loving, but also just existing in an environment that's nurturing and loving can literally potentially change your genes and change the way your brain is working. Exactly. That's, That's what we need to study more and potentially demonstrate. 
specific neuroscience aside, there are 10 behavioral things that we can all do to improve our resilience. Can we go into those? So the first step is to keep a positive attitude. Keeping a positive attitude allows us to engage with um, the brighter side of things. Being optimistic is something that, you know, we kind of mock in some ways. It feels like a cliche, Pollyanna sunshine. But fundamentally, keeping a positive attitude, seeing the world through the lens of the glass being half full, can promote resilience. Always look on the bright Bright side of life. (laughs) That's right. And whatever stimulates that positive attitude, whether it's music, a nice ditty like you described, or or anything else um, that promotes a positive attitude, a reframe by a friend or a therapist or uh, a coworker or a boss um, can be extremely helpful, particularly to contextualize a struggle. We are destined to fail. I don't know if you've read <laughs> Catherine. Catherine. From the lady who did, from the Hope Doctor, we are destined to fail. That's right. We are destined to fail. Catherine Schultz wrote a beautiful uh, book about being wrong. And it, it, it summarizes, in my view, a, a, an important principle um, that, you know, we're so enamored in life about being right all the time. But we're much more frequently wrong than we are right. And it's in our wrong and it's in our error that we learn and grow. That's why I love science, because it has an abiding faith in being wrong. We iterate towards better. We don't have an absolute answer to anything. And far, we have far more questions than we have answers. And we have far less evidence than we think we do. And yet we're so enamored with being right. But if, we're, if we keep a positive attitude towards even our failures, perhaps we can promote our own internal resilience. Yeah, I just did an exercise with my uh, one of my therapists earlier today where I went through any area of my body that had pain. I asked what its emotional experience was, and then I held it lovingly and acceptingly through its pain and through whatever it wanted to share with me. Um, and the purpose of this uh, slightly contrived but really beautiful and effective exercise was just that. It was to look at all of the places where the bad and the potentially wrong sits and accept it fully and unconditionally. Perfect. That's exactly right. And I think that illustrates this point beautifully. The next one is reframe stressful thoughts. And it kind of builds on what we just talked about. So I don't know that we need to spend too much time elaborating on this one, but the idea that you could actually reframe a stressful thought towards something that is an opportunity to learn and to grow and to utilize stress not as a signal to avoid, but to approach through learning could be very helpful in building resilience. People are now talking about things like toxic positivity, the dangers of just seeing the world in this Pollyanna way. But what you're suggesting is that as we have a positive opportunity, accepting the failures and not ignoring them, but accepting them and reframing them and reframing difficult or stressful thoughts towards something that is more positive or um, I guess productive, something that will move you forward in some way, uh, we are actually becoming more resilient and we are encouraging our bodies and our minds to actually work in healthier ways. That's right. That's right. The next prescription 
um, if you will, for resilience is to develop your moral compass. Ooh, what does that mean in this in this context? Sometimes it takes, you know, manpreet or some sort of a foundational concept or moral compass that drives us to engage with our work in fulfilling ways. It's through fulfillment um, that we live and engage in our work successfully. But when we have something that drives us towards that passion, um, then that moral compass can be a very important key driver towards adaptation, particularly around challenges. Back in the day when I was an early uh, child psychiatrist, I would say things like to, to kids, I would ask them whether they want to be when they grow up. Like if they're seven or eight or nine, um, hard to talk about what you're going to do when you grow up many, many years later. What was seen to me a much more valuable um, way of engaging in the question of what do kids dream about? What do they fantasize about them, their best selves? Was a question that really was centered around um, moral compass. I reframed the question of what do you want to be when you grow up to? What problems would you like to solve? Ooh. And all of a sudden, we went from doctor, engineer, lawyer to I want to help climate change. I want to slow climate change. I want to help address the problem of homelessness, right? You can ask a child, what do you think it's going to take? And depending on their developmental stage, they might have very insightful responses. And it's absolutely developmentally contextualized. But kids develop a moral compass very early. Why don't we then incorporate that into our capacity to adapt? Why isn't a higher moral compass um, driving what we do? Perhaps it could be if it's reframed towards that. And perhaps because we're inherently social beings, we can utilize our moral compass in an adaptive way. So we have positive outlook. We have reframed stressful thoughts, develop moral compass. What's number four? Find a resilient role model. Any of you who have listened to the previous podcast with Todd Herman on alter ego can understand how a role model or somebody who is modeling behavior can help you shift the way that you exist in the world. When we find resilient role models, people who we see who have thrived through, through failures and successes, who have, who have found ways to adapt to stress, their learning can become our learning. That's really interesting. I mean, the first role model that comes to mind for me is your sister, but I'm unlikely right. to be able to call her every every time that I'm in a difficult time. But it's very much the way that we often utilize relationships with older siblings or, in my case, my grandmother. When things went wrong, I would call her because she was clearly wise and she got through wars. Like she, she knows how to deal with life and it's like no big deal to her now. The next one is face your fears. And this, this next uh, prescription, facing your fears, um, illustrates a point I had described earlier as well, that you, we are inevitably uh, exposed not just to failure, but to stress. Um, it's not uh, um, something that's imagined or a potential, it's an inevitability. And in human life, we must find ways to confront and uh, uh, face our fears, um, uh, avoiding them may predispose us to um, other problems. And so when you have the capacity to face your fears, even the most 
trivial, if you perceive, <laughs> um, that can be a building block for learning and addressing broader and larger fears. Yeah, this is something that I believe in so deeply. Uh, and I've been doing this practice in my life where anytime I find a fear, no matter how small, it is now my duty to go into it, to actually yeah. sit with it, to feel the fear and to know it's simply an emotion. It rises, it falls, and it goes away. And the other night, yeah. my little kid, he's three, and he said that he was scared of the shadows on the wall. And I said, well, if we went and touched the shadows, would that make it better? And he sort of gave me a look. So I've, you know, held him. I walked together with him. I said, mommy's holding you. And I said, let's touch the shadows together. I touched my shadow. He, he touched his. And then I said, how does that feel? Are you still scared? And he's like, no. And so it's so easy to see when you're an adult and you have a child that sees fears, how, you know, in some ways silly those fears are, how they're only a product of the mind. And as an adult, it's so easy to get sometimes sucked into your fears because you don't have somebody sitting above you seeing how they are merely a fear. The situation's actually safe. And when you approach it, you can discover there's nothing more than a shadow there. I love that you did that with your child. When my children were two and three, my daycare providers would tell me that um, their tantrums were just a product of uh, evolution. It's just their amygdala reacting, and our amygdalas are evolved first before our prefrontal cortex um, because uh, we need to be able to uh, cry for help. We need to be able to uh, seek nurturance and seek support when we're facing or confronting our fears. What we don't want to do, though, is take on those um, challenges completely from our children so that they don't have the capacity to learn and, and address their fears themselves. And so sometimes we develop habits then of avoiding confronting our fears that become then problematic for other aspects of our lives. So, so much of what we do in early development when we try to help kids who are confronting their fears is to really help them practice and rehearse and expose themselves to their fears. It's called exposure therapy. You can look it up and this is a thing. Works at any age. I've done it as an adult. Right. Exactly. <laughs> this is this is universally a strategy. So for adults listening, let's maybe talk about a methodology that could help an adult face their fears. Social interactions are very common fears that adults face on a day-to-day -day basis. And um, so we find ourselves looking for opportunities to master the skill of being able to approach social inhibitions that we might have. And so rather than confront it directly, uh, if that feels uh, challenging to do, we practice we do a role play with someone who's much easier to speak with and um, maybe rehearse what we might want to say to the person that intimidates us. And that rehearsal <laughs> allows um, someone to maybe fumble through and decide, hey, I'm not so excited about doing this, but I've had a chance to master how I want to approach it. And if I iterate and refine what I want to say, I might feel a little bit less intimidated. And uh, that process, through practice, can reduce fear and uh, enable um, an interaction that is more adaptive and uh, easier than it would have been to begin with. Another practice I love to do is to remember that fear is just a sensation. So it seems super yeah. scary to do that thing or talk to that person, but it's just a feeling that you're having. When you do the thing or talk to the person, the outcome, you know, 
likely will be fine. And if you just move yourself through the fear, you might have some sensation of fear. It'll rise, it'll fall. It's just what fear does. But it shouldn't actually keep you from the ultimate activity because so often fear keeps us from doing the thing that we want to do. The next is to develop active coping skills. So this builds on our discussion um, because it's describing um, what strategies we might use to face our fears. Um, Because if you don't have a strategy, (laughs) facing those fears can be very difficult. Um, So developing coping strategies actively, whether it's humor or um, distraction or rehearsal, all of these coping strategies make it um, possible for us to work through fundamental stress. Strategies like music or reframing stressful thoughts or having a methodology to face your fears or calling a buddy. In in many ways, the uh, initial five are actually different strategies that can be referred to in this one. And this is a nice way to kind of Um, demarcate that as we're going along this progression of prescriptions, you can imagine that these are all just building on one another. And um, in my view, they do ultimately uh, kind of uh, represent a core um, construct of how we build resilience, where they're commonplace, they're not news to anyone, but the practice of them, the intention Uh, around engaging with them on a day-to-day basis, in my view, is what is the secret to building resilience. The next uh, strategy is to establish and nurture a supportive social network. This is different than finding a resilient role model, right? Because the resilient role model represents someone in your mind, an archetype, who is who has been successful at mastery of um, stressful <laughs> events in their lives or, or, or overcoming challenges. When you establish and nurture a supportive social network, this social network isn't just your resilient role model. There's a network of folks that are going to facilitate your success, your resilience, but also nurture you. So I love that this next you know, prescription says, don't just make friends. But keep friends, nurture. And this also uh, is fundamental, in my view, to what is being described by Dr. Anthony Biglin, who's a prevention scientist and wrote in 2015 a book called The Nurture Effect, how the science of human behavior can improve our lives and our world. It's um, an amazingly inspirational book that talks about the inherently adaptive nature of being social. Supportive social networks are critical for our survival. Okay, so having friends is not just a choice. It's not just a perk. It is essential. It is essential to our survival. That's a huge statement. It's not just friendships, right? Like sometimes our friends play different roles. When we engage in social interactions, we want to have and build trusting relationships with people who we know are have our back. Okay. So in this case, you're actually taking the role of somebody who is promoting the, you know, creation and growth of supportive social networks. You're now encouraging other people for times when they are loving, supportive, et cetera. Think about parenting. To what extent do we teach people in society how to effectively parent? 
What parenting methodologies do you recommend? The universal principles um, around effective parenting are also embedded in this prescription of resilience is cultivating human beings who can keep a positive attitude um, and reframe their stressful thoughts, but also, you know, encouraging through nurturing and support and scaffolding the ability for our children to face their fears and develop active coping skills. So if we can actually teach these prescriptions that we're talking about, that's a great first step towards effective parenting. I also think that we have to parent around reinforcing pro-social behaviors. So we parent a lot around academic success, but how much do we parent around cultivating uh, and promoting pro-social behaviors in our children by, by being kind and modeling being kind? And how do we do that um, in, in our parenting practices today? That's, that's, in my view, a great place for us to start strategizing around parenting. Dr. Biglin also talks about the importance of minimizing socially and biologically toxic conditions. He says that we must minimize coercion because it is the root of human conflict. So, I mean, as a parent, you're often trying to get your child to do something. That may sound counterintuitive because perhaps we're we're feeling like we're coercing our child to eat or to behave in such a way. Um, but this isn't what this is talking about. Okay. We're talking about coercion in the context of things that potentially could induce human conflict, toxic conditions, coercion to force people to do things without agency. In terms of the business of parenting, the importance of monitoring and setting limits on influences and opportunities to engage in problem behaviors. You know, as a parent, we must be present and supervise and, of course, set limits and access like to things like social media, right? It's important for us as parents to be very careful and cautious about setting limits and access. But it's also important to balance that with gradually allowing kids to manage their own free time in a safe, fun, and productive way. So what we don't want to be in the business of is helicoptering our children too much to limit them too much uh, at a stage when they're trying to explore what is the right balance. They need to be able to have the opportunity to develop the skills around self-management. And it's helpful in the, in the business of being pro-social and resilient, to take a detached and playful approach to talk about people's thoughts. You know, sometimes what we do, the choices we make, aren't so adaptive. But perhaps rather than being too uh, judgmental in the context of those conversations, it can be helpful to be equipoised, neutral, detached. And perhaps even humorous, <laughs> that promotion of a mindful, flexible, and pragmatic pursuit of pro-social values is in fact the business of what we need to do when we're establishing and nurturing our supportive social network. So this is a very loaded one. So a supportive social network doesn't merely mean keep a bunch of friends around you. It means establish and create a network of individuals who you support for supporting one another, who you see, who you see one's mind of, who you reflect back to, who you nurture in these ways that ultimately will nurture the, the entire network. Exactly. 
and notice how it's building on itself. So what is prescription number eight for increased resilience? To build resilience, uh, it's important to prioritize physical well-being. Exercise, exercise, exercise. There's lots of science to support this, um, so I don't know that we need to belabor this point, but prioritizing physical well-being. And it doesn't say exercise specifically because there may be lots of different ways and we may be socialized around um, cliches and, you know, maybe aversive towards the notion of exercise. So conceptually, anything that promotes physical well-being is, 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 is useful and instructive in this particular step. Massages, step. hugs, eating well, warm food. You bet. Exactly. The next one is train your brain. I'm all on board on this one. And uh, this is anchored around just the idea that your brain is a muscle. And it's not actually a muscle, but you can kind of think about it as a muscle and, um, and can be um, trained towards more adaptive uh, strategies of coping with stress. And so there are lots of things that you can do to train your brain. Uh, and there's an emerging, burgeoning uh, neuroscience literature that can um, provide some context for how to do this, um, but very critical for uh, building resilience. So these are skills like recontextualizing, continuing to learn, meditation. Mindfulness, exactly, uh, among others. But certainly, um, we've also discovered that the business of being pro-social and supporting pro-social behaviors in a family context also seems to change the brain. And if we can train the brain to change the brain to improve the outcome, uh, then we have lots of potential here. And this is a space where I spend a lot of my time thinking about leveraging so that we can help promote and cultivate adaptive outcomes in childhood towards better outcomes in adulthood. There's a study with kids in BC doing meditation in elementary school, and it demonstrated that a meditation intervention with them led to a 25% increase in pro-social behavior. That is exactly right. The last step is play to your strengths. Try things that you know um, you can do and access the skills that you have first and build on them. Use those as your key drivers for approaching stress. Um, and utilizing your strengths can uh, promote confidence and has a rippling effect on your capacity to engage with stress. So here we basically have a prescription, according to Mind Sinai Hospital, for resilience. And it contained have a positive outlook, reframe stressful thoughts, number three, develop moral compass, Find a resilient mentor, face your fears, employ active coping skills, establish and nurture supportive social networks, pay attention to your physical well-being, train your brain, and play to your strengths. Probably most of us do some portion of this throughout the day. How do you recommend people think about these 10 uh, various activities and how they incorporate them easily into their lives? I think first identifying and recognizing how you implement these in your day-to-day -day life is a very useful first step. Evaluate for yourself whether any of these 10 steps apply to you and if there are deficits in your uh, resilience um, toolkit um, in any of these 10 steps, maybe consider uh, paying more attention to the ones that, are, uh, that may need a little bit more attention. And, um, and practice, practice, practice. 
it in my view is not in the one and done, the magic bullet, the single shot intervention that's going to build a success. It's, it's why I use the term build, because we're building on the science of resilience. And inherent to that concept is that resilience isn't a fixed state. It is absolutely something that we do dynamically over time. And when faced with a situation that is particularly challenging, if we have our capacity to reframe that challenge in a way that allows us to learn and grow from it, because we're fundamentally going to be wrong, <laughs> um, and embrace and lean into that, um, it is uh conceivable that many more of us could be more resilient in our day-to-day lives and practicing resilience could be part of um, a broader movement to make our society more resilient. Well, thank you very much for giving us some insight into resilience, showing us some of the behaviors that we're probably already doing right now to increase the resilience in our own lives and didn't even realize it, and holding out the opportunity for hope that if we face adversity, we can have built the skills and capabilities, or if we are deficit in them, continue to build the skills and capabilities to allow us to be resilient to whatever challenges come before us. Thank you so much for being a guest on Untangle. Thank you very much for having me. It was a pleasure. That was Dr. Manpreet Singh talking about what we can do to help us build our resilience. If you'd like an awesome infographic to help you track different ways to improve your resilience, you can find it on my website, arielgarten.com, A-R-I-E-L-G-A-R-T-E-N.com as well as a long-format version of this podcast packed with even more information. Also, if you're looking for tools to help you build your resilience, Muse, the brain-sensing headband, can help you kickstart your meditation practice with real-time feedback on your mind and your body while you meditate. Whether you're a novice just looking to begin your practice or an expert looking for new insights, Muse actually tracks your brain and your body during your meditation to show you where your brain is at and to guide you into that state of focused attention, letting you know when you're focused and when your mind has wandered so that you can really dial into your meditation practice. You can find out more at choosemuse.com, C-H-O-O-S-E-M-U-S-E.com. Patricia will be back next week with more untangle. And until then, keep your neurons sparkling.